it's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, January 9th. This is your KVMR Evening News. President Joe Biden approved an emergency declaration for California late last night due to the severe winter storms. More ahead on the California report. Then, only after nearly $28,000 was paid to a California-based private company, did FEMA realize they'd been duped. The fallout up ahead in National Native News. We've got a look at the next bit of winter weather rolling through Northern California before intern news producer Julia Jem tours Cashins Field, Nevada County's newly opened affordable workforce housing project. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. President Joe Biden approved an emergency declaration for California late last night in response to the storms that continue to ravage large parts of the state. This allows the Department of Homeland Security and the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, to coordinate disaster relief efforts. Residents of Guerneville are bracing for more flooding, with the Russian River expected to swell later tonight, inundating numerous low-lying businesses and homes. Mark Becker works at King's Sport and Tackle on Main Street, one of the highest spots in town. In anticipation of this week's rain, people have been coming to the store to buy muck boots and other gear. It's just been all they're talking about. Really, it's been too much, if you ask me, but it's warranted. A lot of people lost their stuff in 2019, so they're trying to do a better job this year. The National Weather Service graphs predict water in Guerneville reaching a, quote, moderate flood stage, nearly 35 feet by tomorrow. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Stanford Healthcare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now is the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org and Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, which bets early on exceptional people making the world better, on the web at SchmidtFutures.com. Governor Gavin Newsom took the oath of office Friday outside the state capitol in downtown Sacramento. As CAP Radio's Nicole Nixon reports, Newsom's second term will be marked by challenges, which he may be able to leverage into a higher office down the road. Newsom won the race for California governor, but much of the attention he's received in the past year has been about his potential candidacy for the White House. The governor insists he's not going to run for president next year and that he'll serve all four years of his governorship. Political strategists say Newsom's presidential prospects depend on his performance this term, which will be his last in the governor's office because of term limits. Rob Stutzman, a Republican strategist who worked for former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, says voters will want to see results on big issues. This is his opportunity uh, to try to implement things that are important to him and his vision. And we've seen him try to make strides along, uh, you know, moving us off of fossil fuels. The pandemic complicated many of Newsom's first term goals, but the state budget has yielded massive surpluses, a trend that appears to be reversing, says Democratic strategist Steve Maviglio. 
She's been playing Oprah and handing out money to everybody who needs it in the state of California. And now it's going to be the opposite. Things are going to get cut. You're going to have to say no a lot. And that's never good for a politician. Both strategists say if Newsom can make major progress on big issues like homelessness, it will help his future political ambitions, whatever they are. That was CAP Radio's Nicole Nixon reporting from Sacramento. Governor Gavin Newsom is setting aside $100 million to support Native American tribes in buying back their ancestral lands. It's part of his 30 by 30 pledge to preserve one-third of state lands and coastal waters by the year 2030. But once a tribe gets their land back, how do they restore and preserve it? KQED's Izzy Bloom reports from Humboldt County, where an indigenous tribe bought back 48 acres of land earlier this year. The 48 acres of coastal property is rich with wetlands, meadows, and spruce forest. If you look at it on a map, it's an island of green surrounded by residential development. The Wiat tribe, an indigenous tribe that's lived in the Humboldt Bay region of Northern California for thousands of years, identified this site in 2015 as a high priority to reclaim, in part because of its cultural importance. The land is referred to as Merwasherwak, the name of a historic Wiat village site on the property. It is the first forest land to be returned to the tribe. So I think it just it represents you know, a place where tribal citizens can finally feel comfortable practicing these cultural traditions like berry picking or mushroom hunting. You know, where they don't have to feel like they're just on public land or trespassing or, yeah, a place to be that, that they can call their own. <laughs> That's Adam Cantor, the natural resources director for the Wiat tribe. He took me on a hike through the forested property. Watch out, this is really slick. Pointing out Sitka spruce trees with egret and heron rookeries and hazelnut branches used by the tribe for basketry. And little uh, redwood violets that are... When get choked out by the, the return of Merwasherwak is the first time the state of California has funded native land back to address climate change. In July, the State Ocean Protection Council awarded the Wiat tribe $1.2 million through its Proposition 1 grant program, so the tribe could buy the parcel from a private landowner. When Governor Gavin Newsom rolled out his proposal to fund native land back as part of his 30 by 30 climate pledge, he used this project as a poster child for the initiative. But $1 million of the grant was used just to purchase the land, leaving less than a quarter million dollars to actually restore and maintain it. Here's Adam Cantor again. There's a lot of you know, attention towards land return right now, but you know, if land return also isn't tied with funding for management, that kind of almost burdens and puts the, the tribes in a rough spot. And so the tribe is really hoping to be able to use 30 by 30 funds to assist with the management of this property. The tribe is also partnering with Cal Poly Humboldt, which is helping with restoration planning, improving water quality, and removing invasive species. I think higher education institutions should feel a great sense of responsibility to assisting tribes with meeting whatever goals that they have for the lands and the peoples and the projects and the things that they're developing. Because higher education institutions occupy stolen, dispossessed Indigenous lands. Kutcher Risling-Baldi is the department chair and associate professor of Native American Studies at Cal Poly Humboldt. She's also the co-director of the university's partnership with the Wiat tribe. And as part of that partnership, the tribe and university are also involving students in the restoration work, including indigenous students in STEM 
and other students in environmental science and Native American studies. When we're able to return land, restore land, and reconnect to land, what you see are brighter futures, uh, climate-resilient futures that really matter for the whole world. Rizling Baldi hopes that tribes and higher education institutions will continue building fruitful relationships that center indigenous knowledge and practices. For The California Report, I'm Izzy Bloom. And that's The California Report for Monday, January 9th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening. How did the Federal Emergency Readiness Agency lose out on over $27,000 in a fake translation scheme? And what's next in the saga of Dawn Walker, a Saskatoon woman accused of abducting her child and faking their death? Hear the details up ahead on National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. After a powerful typhoon slammed into Alaska's west coast in September, the Federal Emergency Management Agency tried to offer information about how to apply for disaster recovery assistance in two Alaska Native languages. But as Emily Schwing reports, those translations were not useful to any Indigenous language speakers in the state. Dozens of Alaska Native villages along the state's west coast were hit hard by Typhoon Murbach. So FEMA hired a California-based company to translate press releases and documents about how to apply for disaster recovery funds into Yupik. The agency also asked for Inupiaq translations. Tom Kempton is a FEMA spokesperson. And it wasn't until, you know, we started doing some of those translations that I don't speak, you know, Yupik. The, what we were seeing coming back, I mean, when I first saw the Inupiaq ones, I was like, what is this? <laughs> it was all like hieroglyphic. Indigenous language speakers across Alaska didn't recognize the languages. Linguist Gary Holton spent 20 years at the University of Alaska Fairbanks Alaska Native Language Center. He says someone lifted full phrases from an 80-year-old compilation of folklore and language that was printed in the Soviet Union. Can you maybe imagine if someone, you know, took all of your uh, your folk tales and then interviewed your great grandmother about um, her experiences growing up and had all of this information recorded and wrote it down and then scrambled it and stuck it in various different ways it would, and made kind of a collage out of it. It's it's kind of yeah it's it's it, it's offensive. That's egregious. Tara Sweeney is the former Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs under the Trump administration. She calls the work a waste of federal funds. I'm absolutely speechless. I I cannot believe that a contractor would put something like this together for the federal government uh, and that there is no verification of whether this is accurate. And that the federal government would actually issue this as a work product of their own. According to FEMA, the agency paid $27,800 to California-based company Accent on Languages. The work was supposed to help fluent indigenous speakers apply for financial assistance following Typhoon Murbach. In Bethel, I'm Emily Schwing. A Canadian woman has decided to have her trial heard by a judge. Dawn Walker is accused of abducting her child and having their deaths faked. She's facing a number of charges. Dan Karpinchuk has more. Walker and her seven-year-old son were reported missing in July. 
After a search of two weeks, they were found safe in Oregon. That after she illegally crossed the border into the U.S. Authorities there have also brought charges against her. She was returned to Saskatoon in August and has waived her right to jury trial and elected to have her case heard by a judge. Ari Goldkind is a criminal defense lawyer. He says going before a judge alone is a tactical decision. When you have all of the things that a jury will hear this woman allegedly did, the list, that may be something that a jury may really, really dislike, particularly, is there a divorced dad or two on that jury? Walker is a longtime employee of the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations, where she serves as CEO. A U.S. official also alleges Walker stole the identity of a close friend to open a bank account as part of an abduction plan. Walker is also believed to have been in a custody battle with her son's father. Her trial dates will likely be set this week. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. The Indian Loan Guarantee and Insurance Program has worked with lenders for almost 50 years, supporting them as they support you. Need startup funds or a refinance? Information at bia.gov dci, which supports this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Now let's take a look at your local news. Nevada County's cold weather shelter at the Nevada City Veterans Hall on North Pine Street in Nevada City is open tonight. The shelter accepts guests until 8 p.m. and closes at 7.30 a.m. each morning. The Homeless Outreach and Medical Engagement Team, also known as the Home Team, will provide case management services to attendees. The Nevada County Veteran Service Office will also connect homeless veterans to available services. Hospitality House will provide homeless access transportation to and from the Veterans Hall. According to the Nevada Irrigation District, the ongoing storms are filling local reservoirs to capacity. Both Rollins Reservoir and Comby Reservoir are full and have been spilling for days. Scott's Flat Reservoir is projected to spill at some point today. This, says NID, is perfectly normal. The dams have spillways designed to automatically release high flows prior to causing a dam safety issue. Despite the dramatics of cascading water, the flows from the dams are well below the threshold for high flow notification. The agency's director of power systems, Keen Summers, says, quote, the current flows are fairly routine in nature and similar to those experienced in prior years. This reported in a joint effort by UBINET and NID. Today at noon, Pacific Gas and Electric streamed a Facebook Live update on the utility company's response effort to the current historic storms pummeling much of California. PG&E Executive Vice President of Operations and Chief Operating Officer Adam Wright spoke from the PG&E Emergency Response Center in Vacaville. This is an historic series of storms, and we are meeting it with an historic storm response. This is the largest response effort PG&E has ever assembled for a winter storm event. More than 5,800 PG&E 
contract and mutual aid personnel are currently dedicated to storm response so we can safely get power back on as quickly as possible. At this moment, the storm has caused outages in 42 counties, so this is a very widespread event. We have approximately 2,200 active outages affecting 87,000 customers. The areas with the highest numbers of impacted customers are in the South Bay and Central Coast areas and the North Valley and Sierra. And a quick note to round out today's local news, Nevada County's Transit Services, Nevada County Connects, and Nevada County Now won't run on Monday, January 16th, in observance of the Martin Luther King holiday. Turning our attention to your local weather forecast from the National Weather Service, Northern California is currently in the midst of a strong Pacific storm. Heavy precipitation and damaging southerly winds could produce flooding and mountain travel impacts. The National Weather Service says additional storms will move through the region during the second half of the week and into the weekend. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight showers mainly after midnight with a low around 38 degrees. Tuesday, showers with thunderstorms possible after 10 a.m., steady temperature around 42 degrees with gusts as high as 31 miles per hour. New rainfall between 1 and 2 inches is possible. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight snow mainly before 7 p.m. with a low around 22 degrees. Wind could gust as high as 45 miles per hour with new snow accumulation from 2 to 4 inches possible. Tuesday, we'll see plenty of snow with anywhere from 6 to 10 inches possible and a high near 34 degrees. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight showers with thunderstorms possible after 5 a.m. and a low around 48 degrees. Tuesday, showers and possibly a thunderstorm with a steady temperature around 52. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. The California Statewide Communities Development Authority explains workforce housing as housing geared towards those in the, quote, missing middle. These are individuals and families that earn too much to qualify for traditional affordable housing, but not enough to afford market rate rents in the communities where they work. Typically, they earn between 60% and 120% of the area median income. Last week, KVMR News producer Julia Jem headed to the grand opening of Cashins Field, Nevada County's very own workforce housing project nestled on the corner of Zion Street and Ridge Road in Nevada City. She brings us this report. Cashins Field, an affordable workforce housing project providing 51 units, is move-in ready after over a year of construction and development. On Wednesday, January 4th, I attended a brief touring of the location, viewing each of the three kinds of available floor plans. The Gold Rush, which consists of one bedroom and one bathroom, the Minor, which consists of two bedrooms and one bathroom, and the Motherload, which consists of three bedrooms and two bathrooms. The first tenants to move in would do so the following day, January 5th. While attending the tour, I met Mike Dent, the Director of Housing and Child Support Services for Nevada County. I was given the opportunity to sit down with him and ask a few questions pertaining to this development. Here's what he had to say. I am Mike Dent, the Director of Housing and Community Services here in Nevada County, and we're here at Cashins Field. Uh, it's a 51-unit affordable housing project inside the city of, of Nevada City that will start having people move in tomorrow, which is January 5th. 
So you said 51 units. Yes. Um, so how many people is the, the complex able to house? Yeah, so there's a mixture of one-bedroom, two-bedroom, and three-bedroom units. And we just asked the property managers uh, what they thought, how many people they thought were going to be moving in, and they don't really know yet. But just so the listeners know, you can have uh, one to three people in a one-bedroom, depending on the family uh, makeup, and you can have... Ba- basically six or seven people in a three-bedroom. A three Not to say that they will all be occupied at that amount, but just to show you, it could be three people or it could be seven people in a three-bedroom unit, but they have to be part of a family unit, and they all collectively have to income qualify, not just one person. And um, in what ways are the rent prices based on specific income requirements? So uh, affordable housing projects use public funding to help build these things, this beautiful, complex is expensive to build. Uh, so what comes with the public monies through the um, re- the tax credit allocation commission, which uh, provided a majority of the funding for this, is it has to be qualified based on housing and urban development data on the region. So it's the annual median income of Nevada County. So as we heard earlier during the tour, you know, that could be up to about 37000 for one person. And I believe it for like a family of four, it's up in the high 60s, like sixty-nine or $70,000 a year. Okay, that's great. You have to make that amount or less. I see. And are there any plans for more of these kind of developments in the future? Absolutely, yes. You know, the, the county a priority with the Board of Supervisors is to have not just market rate housing, but the whole array of, of housing availability from young families to those that are retired and need um, additional accommodations as they age. I'll use Lone Oak in Penn Valley as an example. That's a senior affordable housing project only. That was a county, um, invo- the county was involved in the um, d- design of that. There's also a Lone Oak phase two that's in the process, uh, probably a couple years away from being built, but um, the property's there, the developer controls it, they're seeking the financing to build the layers of financing they need to get the tax credits. It's very complex when it comes to affordable housing. Um, So we have that. We just opened up Brunswick Commons, which was targeted towards mostly homeless or at risk of homeless. And so that mixture, unlike Cashin's Field here, is mostly one bedrooms because people that are generally homeless, we try to, if it's a family, we try to throw all kinds of resources on them to get them out of the street because we don't want kids to be homeless. But um, majority of the homeless makeup in our community are single individuals. So that's why that complex, the 41 units, was targeted towards mostly one. I think there are 32 one-bedrooms and uh, eight two-bedrooms over there. Awesome. Well, it sounds like despite many complexities, things are getting done. Yeah, it's a slow process. We have, And there's a project up in uh, Truckee that's probably going to be the next one that's going to get funded. It's called... Uh, uh, Pacific Crest Commons can be about 57 unit. Again, like this, a mixture of one, two, and three bedroom units. Um, while that's in Truckee, it's in Nevada County, and it doesn't matter where it's at, as long as it's inside the border, because we want to, again, build that that uh, array of housing from one bedroom all the way up for single people up through the families. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mike. Thanks a lot. For KVMR, I'm Julia Jem. That's our newscast for Monday, January 9th, 2023.
KVMR gets support from generous listeners like you and Scraps Dog Bakery at Mountain Mutts. Family owned for 18 years, providing cat and dog wellness needs, including holistic organic food, training accessories, toys, also fresh bakery. Scraps Dog Bakery at Mountain Mutts, next to BNC Hardware, Grass Valley. And Chan Family Optometry, serving Nevada County since 1978. Dr. Chan and team provide comprehensive medical eye care utilizing the latest technologies, specializing in glasses, contacts, dry eye, pediatrics, and low vision. ChanFamilyOptometry.com KVMR's Future of Radio project is back and we're looking for our next group of Youth News Corps reporters. If you're interested in radio journalism and production, are 15 to 18 years old, and live in Nevada County, the early application deadline is coming up February 5th. Head to kvmr.org slash youthnewscore for more information. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Join us Tuesday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News.